0: All right. you can grab a seat. Grab a seat as you do. Grab your Bible. Hopefully you brought a Bible. Turn to John chapter 14. I'm going to be in John 14 this morning. I just want to make another plug for uh, the feeding uh, ministry at Nyland Acres. I have Tim and Laurie in our community group, and the stories they tell week after week. It just sounds like an amazing opportunity, and you only have to sign up once. You only have to sign up for, to go one week, and our church could fill out, you know, months of, of opportunities. But go. Go see what God is up to uh, as we care for uh, those less fortunate than ourselves in our own community. Um, so just want to plug that one more time. I encourage you to sign up for that. So we are in John 14 uh, this morning. Now, there is a word in the English language... Uh, That might be used more than any other word. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's got to be up there, one of the top ones. It's three letters, two possible pronunciations, one syllable, the. The word the. Now, if you were to be a nerd and study grammar, you would know this is called the definite article. The definite article. The indefinite article is a or a. Give me a ball the definite article, the, you say, give me the ball. Okay, it's, it's used to signify particularity or specificity or significance. I want that one. Give me the ball, the only one. I had a, a college roommate who was very particular uh, and persnickety. And on his desk, he had three cups. Okay, One cup full of blue pens, one cup full of black pens, one cup that was cut in half with red pens and pencils. And when he went to his economics classes, I would run into his room and mess up all the pens and pencils and, and rearrange them and make a big mess and then leave and wait for him to come home. And then he would come home and be like, ah, Eric. And he knew it was me. And I'd giggle and laugh. And uh, it was very funny. Um, that's neither here nor there. Now, but imagine you on your desk have a jar. Okay, you have a jar of pencils. If you had a jar of pencils, you may call out someone and say, hey, 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 grab me a pencil. But if you had a jar of pens, it was all pens, but there's only one shiny number two pencil in the cup, you'd say, hey, grab me the pencil. I want, I want that one, the particularity, singularity, exclusivity. So, kids in the room. Okay, let's say you're you're supposed to work really hard on some homework. Okay, you've got homework to do. And then a dog named Fido comes along. And actually, actually eats your homework. It's amazing, okay? It just fits the stereotype. This dog eats your homework somehow. And when your teacher or your parent asks you, what happened? You know, you, you try to give them an answer, explain how the dog ate your homework. Uh, but it's, it's not going very well as you try to explain it. But then you go outside and you see Fido. It's really important in that moment not to say, hey, there is a dog that's not going to help you. You need to say, there is the dog. That is the one. That is the one that committed this crime against humanity, okay? The. Particularity, exclusivity, significance, okay? I bring all this up not just to tickle, you know, the fancies of the grammar nerds in the room. No, I bring it up because our passage employs the word the in really important ways. It employs a definite article in a way that we have to get, we have to understand if we're going to enjoy life with God. Now, For those who haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are in the middle of the book of John. We've been studying this for several months, and we have come to Jesus' final teaching before he's going to march to the cross uh, and die for us. Now, he he tells his disciples, we we saw this last week, he tells his disciples, chapter 13, verse 33, he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And then, He tells them that Peter is going to deny him three times. And so it makes sense in that moment that the disciples, they are troubled. They've been staking their life on this guy for three years. And now he's saying that he's leaving and they can't come with him. And their de facto leader, he's going to fail spectacularly. They are troubled. And so what Jesus says in our verses this week, what he says, it's meant to comfort them, to comfort their troubled hearts and minds. Okay. With that context in mind, let's get our shakes out one more time. If you wouldn't mind, stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Bert did this a couple months ago, and I liked it, so I'm going to have you do it. So you can stand up. It's only seven verses, so this is good. Kids, this is your last chance. Get those wiggles. Actually, you can wiggle all you want. I don't care. All right. John chapter 14, let's start with verse 1. Jesus says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can sit down. We are in, Keep your Bibles open, please. We're going to be looking at it uh, a lot this morning. Well, We're going to zero in on chapter 6, the way, the truth, and the life, as it's the key to the whole passage. And our outline is really simple, okay? Four words, ready? The, way, truth, life. That's the outline, okay? If you like notes, the, way, truth, life. Let's dive in. To begin, we need to talk about those three little letters, the, okay? What does Jesus mean when he says that he is the way and the truth And the life. Well, he makes himself perfectly clear in in the next, in the end of verse 6. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's making a very bold claim of exclusivity. Okay, he's being exclusive. There's no other way, no other truth, no other life. Now, maybe we hear that and we're a little incredulous because of this claim. We're like, isn't that, I mean, isn't that too exclusive? Isn't that a little too narrow? I mean, isn't isn't exclusivity the the enemy of of choices and therefore freedom? And well, I love both choices and freedom. I mean, when, when you go to a Mexican restaurant and you're hankering for a burrito, oftentimes you look up at the menu and they have choices. Okay? Lots of beautiful, delicious, tantalizing choices of different options of burrito you can get. Now, we would be upset if someone, took all those away or if the government just declared one day that, that only one be burrito from now on would be the burrito and no one else could sell anything else that would be scandalous It'd be repressive okay so exclusive we love choice we want the freedom of a multitude of choices and options and, and Jesus comes along and says there's no other choices when it comes to God really Now, the problem with this understanding of of freedom as unlimited choices is that it's an illusion. Exclusivity is not the opposite of freedom. It's only the opposite of a particular type of freedom. Saying yes to anything always means saying no to a host of other things. We are not free to do everything all the time. Furthermore, to be exclusive may be binding in the way it, it limits your options, but it is also freeing, it's liberating in the way that it unleashes your experience. Maybe we know someone who's often crippled by choice, and we know that they are not free. Now, marriage is, marriage is a great example of this. When you make the marriage vow, okay, it binds your freedom. You uh, no longer can pursue multiple lovers. Saying yes to one person literally means saying no to 3.5 billion other people. And some of you are sitting there going, I did not know I had so many options, okay? Uh, It it, it limits you, but it also frees you to experience a depth of love that is impossible outside the covenant of lifelong fidelity to one person. It unleashes a type of experience, a, a type of freedom. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches when it comes to faith in God the narrowness or the exclusivity of the gospel actually opens us up to the greatest freedom in the universe, which is life with God, our creator. The restrictiveness of of binding ourselves to Christ actually frees us. It liberates us from a host of other things into abundant life in Christ. And as we'll see in a second, the life and the truth we find through this exclusive way, it's totally worth giving up the freedom of other spiritual paths, to get it. So let's turn out and talk about the only way. The way. Jesus is comforting the troubled hearts of his disciples. But there's a bit of movement in the passage which we need to pay attention to. So last week, thirteen, chapter 13, verse 33, he says we cannot go where he is going. But then in our passage in 14.3, he says we get to be where he is. So we can't go where he's going, but... Somehow in the end, we get to be where he is. In between these two things, it seems that he's going to go do something for us. We can't go with him while he does something for us that only he can do. But then, because of that thing, we get to join him. We get to be with him. Thus, he says, I am the way. Now, sometimes around here, you'll hear the phrase, practicing the way of Jesus. It's a, it's a great uh, phrase in, in ministry. Uh, But when we use language like practicing the way of Jesus or following Jesus or wanting to be an apprentice of Jesus, we run the risk, if we don't fill it out, we run the risk of making it sound like Christianity is merely following his example. But it's more than that. It, It is that, but it's more than that. See, Jesus has to go where we cannot go. He has to go there for us. He does not just model the way. He is the way. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one has access to the Father except through me. Again, there's movement in the passage from we cannot go with him to we get to be with him, which means that Jesus does something for us. And in the passage, he calls this preparation. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and he's going to prepare a place for us there. Now, the common reading way of reading this is to to see this is is after the resurrection jesus is going to ascend up to the father and he's going to prepare a place for us in heaven with the father and then he's going to come back at his second coming to take us to be with him maybe you went to summer camp uh, in the 90s as a kid you sang that audio adrenaline song you know come and go with me to my father's house you know what i'm talking about it's a big big house with lots and lots of rooms. It's a a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. Okay? Now, that song, it's it's a great song. Okay? It's fine. It captures the wide welcome of God's house, the wide welcome of God's family, his kingdom for his people. It's saying, there's room for you too. And that's true. There is. Know that, that you are welcomed. But while that's all true, I want to suggest that it might be only part of the picture that Jesus is presenting here. Now, bear with me a second. The Father's house. okay, That's shorthand for his presence. The presence of God. It's it's where his presence dwells. So it's right to think of heaven as as the Father's house. Jesus will bring us into God's presence. But there's more. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple and he says, my father's house is not supposed to be a a house of trade. See, the temple is the place of God's presence on earth. But when the Jews ask him for a sign, and they say, what authority do you have to to cleanse a temple like this? Jesus says, destroy this temple, this house, and I'm going to raise it in three days. And then John adds the comment, he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus... He's saying that he is the place on earth where God resided. He was God's house, as it were, on earth. So later in chapter 4, when when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John 4, they have this little theological argument about, well, you say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but but the Samaritans, they worship at the the temple on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, no, 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 the day is coming where you're not going to worship on that mountain or this mountain because it's not about the temple. You're going to worship in spirit and truth. Why does he say that? Because he is the place of God's presence on earth. He has become the house, the place where God dwells. Here in chapter 14, look down, it's next week, but look down at verse 10. Jesus says that he is in the Father, that the Father is in him. And he says, the Father who dwells in me. He is the dwelling place, the house of the Father. Not only this. But when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, okay, a more literal translation of that word room would be abode. Have you heard that phrase, a humble abode? It's my humble abode. An abode is where you abide. And one chapter later, John 15, Jesus will say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. Jesus is going to go somewhere to become the place where we abide. Now, if this is true, what is the preparation? Where is he going in these verses? Well, rather than going up to heaven to do a little remodel, knock out a few walls, it seems that he's talking about the cross. He's going where we cannot go, the cross, to prepare a place for us in himself. I know that sounds strange, but look at verse 3. He says, I will go and prepare a place for you at the cross, and when I come again, maybe now we read this as resurrection, he says, I will take you where? To heaven? To the Father? He says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Okay, he's unpacking, he's talking about union with Christ. That we can be bound to Christ through faith because of his death and resurrection. Where he takes our place Dies our death that we might live his life. We're, We're bound to him, united to him. And this means that our access to the Father isn't just when we die or when he comes back, but it begins now. We get that access now. Yes, all of these promises have huge, massive, monumental implications for the future. Yes, that is true. We get eternity with God on a new heavens, new earth. We get all of that. This doesn't take away from that at all. But we don't have to wait until eternity. There's a life we get to enjoy in Christ and through Christ right now. Through the cross, we are now united to Christ. We hide hide ourselves in him so that that when the Father looks at us, he sees Christ. And he, he loves us with the love that he has for his son. Access to the Father right now, rejoicing in the Father's love for us and our love for him right now. The life of the Father working through us right now. Do you see it? Jesus is the way in that he went where we could not go to die the death we deserve, to make a way for us to abide in him and our access to the Father through our union with Christ to give us that. Such good news. Such good news. Now, if Jesus is the way, that means that we are not. If Jesus is the way, that means that we are not. Every other religion, every other system of morality, every other weight loss program or get rich quick scheme places a burden on you to get there. You have to do it. The way to where you want to go is by you doing something. You got to do the work. And we kind of like that, right? I mean, it gives us power, gives us control, gives us choice. And Jesus comes along and says, nope. There's one way. There is one way. Exclusive, only way to everything you've always wanted. And it isn't about you doing anything. He says, I am the way. The way is a person because that person did everything for you. He went where you couldn't go so that we could be where he is and have what is his and enjoy the love of the Father that he enjoys. See, as we approach the Father, it's not on our own terms, but we get to point to Jesus and say, no, no, I'm with him. I get to be here because I'm I'm with him. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus because no one could get to the Father except for Jesus. Jesus is the way, and we are not. So if we want to accept this way, we have to relinquish our self-sufficiency. We have to give up our freedom of doing things ourselves. We need to surrender our freedom of choice, doing things our way, and accept the way. And then we'll get all the freedom there is in the universe. Man, how gracious of God. He didn't have to give us any way. How good that he gave us a way. But more importantly, that he provided the way. Third, Jesus is the truth. About four years ago, in a, a now- kind of famous Golden Globes speech, Uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, used the phrase, she mainstreamed the phrase, speak your truth. She said it in this speech like three times. Speak your truth, speak your truth, speak your truth. It went viral from that point on, just kind of took off, and now we hear it all over the place. Now, I am tempted to kind of sneer uh, at what seems like postmodern mumbo-jumbo, okay, jargon. Uh, But I want to pause and try to be as charitable as I can to a phrase like that, okay? The phrase, your truth, or, my truth, what it's trying to convey at its best is the idea that different people can have different perspectives or experiences of the same event. Now, the phrase, it came in the wake of the Me Too movement, and it encouraged those who felt that their voices were unheard to speak up. And, and let me just say, it is important to listen to victims, especially when they are too often silenced. I get that. I agree wholeheartedly with that. We're ha- we called to give voice to the voiceless. That said, that kind of nuanced use of the phrase uh, seems to more often just be set aside today. And culturally, we seem to, to more often spin off into kind of a jumble of perspectives and just kind of speak in our truth uh, that essentially says no one is allowed to present competing claims. No one is allowed to say anything that might contradict me. There's no such thing as objective fact or reality. I get to say or believe whatever I want. You have your perspective. I have mine. You have your truth. I have mine. Now, this kind of broader relativism, maybe you have heard it applied to religion, when someone claims, you know, all the world religions are the same, you know, they're after the same thing. They're kind of like 10 blind people, you know, groping at an elephant, trying to figure out what it is. You know, one of them touches the leg and like, oh, it's like a big tree trunk. And one of them, you know, grabs, uh, you know, the, the tusk and like, ah, I think it's a dead tree. And then, then one of them gets the trunk, and like it's, it's a giant snake, you know, you watch out. Um, and, and, you know, they, they just, they're just after the same thing, but they're just different perspectives because they have different parts. Now, the problem with that argument is that the person who is making that argument or asserting it, they are claiming to have the perspective that relativizes all the others. They're claiming to stand in a place to be able to evaluate and see all other religions and say that they're the same. They are claiming to have the truth that says all religions are grasping at the same thing. See, there, there has to be reality. There has to be fact. There has to be truth if we are going to make sense of the world. If, if I steal your wallet after church, you won't be satisfied when I say, that's just your truth. You know, my truth is this money's mine. You know, that doesn't work. Now, I believe deep down, deep down, and this is true culturally, I think in our, in our world, I think we all long for truth. I, I think there, there's a heart longing to get in touch with reality, we long for a standard by which we can evaluate truth claims and know what is real. And Jesus says, He is the truth. What does he mean? Well, the Bible teaches that, that God is the reality. He is the truth that makes sense of all of the realities and all other truths in the universe. God is the standard. God is the plumb line. God is the square. God is the pitch pipe by which everything else is aligned or measured or leveled or tuned or made sense of. And when Jesus comes along and says, I am that truth, he's saying, look at me and you can know the truth. You can know the truth of the universe, of the the reality of all realities. See, Jesus is the way, no one has access to the Father except through Jesus, but Jesus is also the truth, so no one gets the truth about the Father except through Jesus. Look at verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They know the standard. Wow. To see Jesus is to truly see the Father. Everything you can know about the Father is found in Jesus. And in him, we have the standard by which to evaluate all other life, all of, all of life and every other truth claim there is. He becomes our, our ruler by which we measure everything. Okay, this brings us finally to Jesus claiming to be the life. Jesus is the way. No one gets access to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus is the truth. No one gets the truth about the Father except through Jesus. Finally, Jesus is the life. No one gets the life of the Father except through Jesus. Christ's promise to prepare a place for us is so much better than mansions in the clouds. It's so much better than that. The problem with that camp song, it's a great song, but the problem with it is that it might get us to focus too much on what we get from God rather than the fact that we get God. The thing that makes the Father's house so good is that it's the Father's house. He's there. What we get at the end of the road is not a thing, but a person. We get Jesus. And, and if, if we probe into this, it actually makes sense then of the exclusivity. So I've got a quote for you. This is from Michael Reeve's book, Rejoicing in Christ. Great little book. Uh, but he writes this about this verse. He says, When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that could sound unnecessarily tribal or snobbish, but for this, There's no one else who offers what he offers. Some religions offer paradise or nirvana. He shares with us himself, his very sonship, his life before the father. If the gospel was about God sharing with us some other thing other than himself, then Jesus' words would sound clicky. Why couldn't others be purveyors of that thing? But since the blessing he brings is himself and his own life, it is plain nonsense to think of him as just one religious stall, much the same as others. Others can offer a God or salvation, but only when someone offers Jesus do they offer the same thing as the gospel. Jesus is the life. He is the thing that we long for. Have you ever had one of those moments on, on like the perfect vacation, maybe you're like, I've never had a perfect vacation. Okay, just imagine then. Okay, imagine the perfect vacation where you go and, and it's, you get to spend all day doing your favorite thing and you get to the end of the day having done your favorite thing and you're kind of exhausted and tired but like full because you're like, gosh, that was so good and you're sitting back and relaxing. Maybe you have your favorite beverage in hand or a snack and you just lean back and sigh and you're like, ah, this is the life. Have you ever had that moment? Or maybe do you long for that moment? Okay, what is it for you? Think about it. We all have conceptions of the life. We all have things that we think of. What is it for you? Karis and I, we've got four kids, eight down to two, and the last eight years have been intense. Having young kids is intense. And, you know, for us, we've... we've, wanted to create a culture in our family you know have that family life and then for us it's okay we want to do family dinner together as many nights a week as we can where we sit down and we like enjoy family time around the table share a meal do family dinner and a lot of nights it is crazy okay it's chaos trying to get there it's like wash your hands you know as we're like scrambling they like get the food on the table and get all in you know napkins down silverware but every once in a while after all that chaos we sit down and and the kids are sitting there and maybe, maybe we pray quickly and we start eating and then it just happens. Like, we're having conversation and we're laughing and we're like enjoying family time around the table and Karis and I look at each other. We're like, oh, we're doing it. Like, this is the family life for like 30 seconds. And then our two-year-old slams his forehead on the table and someone spills a large glass of milk and I literally cry over spilled milk because it's terrible. And it's just like everything just devolves into chaos again and unravels, you know, Genesis 3, Wabohu, or whatever, you know, it's without form and void and, and chaos. Um, but for that moment, oh, that brief moment, it was the life, the family life we've been trying for. Just that brief little moment. What is it for you? When you think of the life, what is it for you? Get in there, probe into your heart. What are you longing for? We all have conceptions, things that we dream of, things that we think of. If only we could achieve that thing, then we would have the life. What is it? Do you have house envy? You know, do, do you, you're cramped in the tight little living quarters and you dream about maybe one day having that house. You know, you drive around Camarillo like, man, I love that place. <laughs> if only I could have that yard. If only I could have that space, man, that would be the life. Maybe it's, maybe it's kid envy. You know, parenting is intense. It's hard. And sometimes you come to church and you sit in church and you look across the aisle and you're like, how are those kids so docile and well-behaved? You know, mine are wild animals. And you're like, if only I could be a better parent. If only I could do a better job. If only somehow I could like shepherd my kids and and they turn out exactly how I want, that would be the life only I could do it. Do you have job envy? You know, you're you're toiling away day after day. You get up in the morning, you're like, do I have to do this again? And you think, if only, if only I could get that job, if only I could, you know, climb the ladder to that next rung and, 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 and get to that next stage in my career, if only I could get that perfect job that fully satisfies All of my longings and it fully, I get to express all of my gifts and unique personalities and I get paid full-time to work 10 hours a week and, and, you know, I change the world, you know, because of this perfect job. If only I could get that, that would be the life. Is it spouse envy? Again, you think to yourself, gosh, I mean, marriage is hard, it's tough. And you have some friends and you think to yourself, man, why do they have it so easy? it's so hard for us. And you just think, gosh, if only only we could have their relationship, that would be the life. Maybe even more dangerous, if only I could have their spouse, that would be the life. Maybe you're unhappily single and you're like, if only I could have a spouse, that would be the life. It's hard. What is it for you? Jesus Comes along and he says, I am the life. I am the life. All of your longings, everything you've ever longed for, I am that. I am the life. No one gets true life apart from me. The good news of the gospel is we get Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And in fact, if you've been paying attention in John, he's been saying this all throughout his ministry. Think of the I am statements. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am The Good Shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Or John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus is the life. So John begins and ends his gospel telling us this. Chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Chapter 20, verse 31, you've heard this so many times. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In Jesus, we get the life of the Father. This is such incredible news. Through Christ, we we get access to the Father. We get to see the truth about the Father. And we get the life of the Father. Do you long for life that is truly life? Do you long for the truth that that orients all other truth? It can be yours. It can be yours. There's room for you in God's family, in God's house. There's plenty of room, but there's only one way. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the way. That life in his name comes from his death and resurrection for you. He is the way and the truth and the life.